Hello, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club, and we finally come to uh, our examination of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. It's not surprising that this is my favorite Lovecraft story because I'm a historian, and this is his most historical, his most antiquarian of, of stories. It's the one with the most uh, conscious historical kind of setting and narrative going back to the American Revolution and the colonial period. And other stories do this. Uh, of course, you have all the stories that do the deep cosmic history, like the Mountains of Madness. But you also have stories like uh, Witch House, uh, Dreams of the Witch House, which gets into New England history, but nothing quite as epically as the case of Charles Dexter Ward. So it's also his most Atlantic and consciously Atlantic story, uh, really dealing with cross-Atlantic uh, networks and, and ideas, uh, literature, uh, and people. Uh, slavery uh, plays a prominent role in the case of Charles Dexter Ward as well. So we're going to have a lot to talk about in the next uh, five episodes as we dissect bit by bit the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, this story, novel, really, I, I guess I'll talk to it either, speak of it either way, novella, perhaps. It, you know, when Lovecraft died, it was just a bunch of papers um, written not long after and actually overlapping with his writing of of. Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Uh, we know from his letters that he was working on these two longer tales in the winter of 26 to 27. This one was finished sometime in March of 1927. And it appeared not until 1941 in Weird Tales. That's, of course, um, several years after he died. Um, so it's it actually appeared in a couple issues. Um, uh, yeah. Two back-to-back -back issues, May 1941 and July 1941. Um, it's about 130 pages. It's his longest work. It's, it's significantly longer than both Dream Quest of Anon Kadath and The Mountains of Madness. <clears throat> but it's worth every moment uh, of this story. So I do urge you to, to read this if you haven't yet. I, I think most Lovecraft fans have come across this. Um, I don't know I, if how other people feel about it. I haven't really done much look into into kind of what Lovecraft fans prefer. It's not really an interest of mine. I'm not like a top 10 list kind of guy. But this would be my number one uh, Lovecraft story for a variety of reasons. Um, now, the the device of this story, and spoiler alerts for all of the case of Charles Dexter Ward uh, throughout these episodes, uh, is the ability to reduce people to these essential salts. And he starts with this quote of... of Borelis. Borelis it was a French physician named Pierre Borel from the 17th century. And he's quoted in Cotton Mather. I think Cotton Mather was talking about this desire to have a library of ideas. And the, he quoted uh, Pierre Borel uh, saying this, quote, the essential salts of animals may be prepared and preserved that an ingenious man may have a whole arc of Noah in his own study and raise the fine shape of an animal out of its ashes at his pleasure and may the like method from the essential source of human dust a philosopher may without any criminal necromancy call upon the shapes of any dead ancestor from the dust where into his body has been incinerated end quote so of course our main character in the story uh jo joseph Kerwin, is a criminal necromancer so lovecraft doesn't agree that this does not involve criminal necromancy um, he's pretty clear that this is stuff that should not be done. Um, now, I don't know how much Lovecraft accepted this idea, or is this just a device for the story, a device for magic? Obviously, magic plays a role in the story, but um, I think 
this sort of comes down to the problem of mind-body dualism. Um, and I think we need to contextualize the ideas as expected by this, expressed by this Pierre Borel as a real quote. It's not, it's not made up by Lovecraft. In fact, he often draws from real philosophers and, and writers and artists in his work, um, which is why sometimes people who maybe are first exposed to it get confused and think maybe the Necronomicon is a real book or some of these other fictional texts are real because there's so many real texts that he name drops throughout the, his works. Um, now, mind-body dualism, of course, this is the philosophical idea that, that our, our essence and our physical existence are, are separated, that our, we have a mind, and that mind is not necessarily connected to the body or connected to the body in, in mysterious ways, right? Like Descartes, try, you know, he was famous for establishing this mind-body dualism, but he had to connect these together, and I think he said the pituitary gland is where they connect, um, now, if you're a strict materialist, like Lovecraft was, um, and if you're a strict materialist today, you don't really accept this mind-body dualism. You say who we are is just a product of our brain and our bodies, right? So the idea being, if you cut off my, my arm, I'm a different person, essentially. Of course, uh, physically I'm changed. My behavior will change as a being a one-armed man from that point on, and, and over time my mental aspects will change or to get more to the point you know you shoot someone in the head and they survive they often come out of it a changed person they might have lowered inhibitions or they might have cognitive difficulties or whatever they they're not the same person there is a relationship between our physical the health of our physical body and our and our spirit uh, such as it is who we are so that's the materialist view of course the christians and christian civilization and you have the same debate in muslim philosophy and uh, Jewish philosophy is, is you know, our, what's the difference between our physical self and our, our spiritual self, our soul, if you will. And the mind-body dualism problem explored this. But let's contextualize it at the time this quote was written in the, in the 17th century. Now, the alternative to dualism is called physicalism, physicalism and that was apparently coined in the 1930s. But there are various ideas about mind-body you know, at the, like at the time of Descartes, for instance, in the time that this quote emerges, uh, this this Pierre Boreal quote, uh, for instance, Aquinas believed in mind body unity, although the soul did was particular and could survive death in a way. Right. A Christian would have to have some belief in the persistence of the soul after death. But in life, it's it's tied, it's connected to the body in an essential way. They're not like a separate, separable things. So, you know, I'm not a real expert on, on all the philosophy behind this, but it seems that this was a debated concept, right? And so this proposal that we can reduce who we are to salts, maybe the method is, is not really plausible to modern readers, but maybe in a 17th century standpoint it is, uh, you know, if you accept this kind of unity of mind and body and don't go the full Cartesian kind of dualist approach. Um, now... There's another interesting thing about this, though, and this idea of categorization of creating a library um, beyond the dualism part of it. This goal of, of categorizing knowledge, of organizing it, uh, of, of, of taxonomy, right? Ta you know, the, the quote here is a, a man could create a whole Noah's Ark in his study, right? I mean, 
who wouldn't want to be able to do that if they were like a biologist, right? And to a certain degree, biologists did do that. They preserved bodies. You know, they took animals, preserved them, or they had taxidermists who preserved them, and, and you had whole museums of these things. And they became very popular in the time of the scientific revolution and in the Enlightenment. And what was the Enlightenment, if not at least partially a goal to synthesize and, and, and standardize and collect all knowledge? And the Enlightenment encyclopedias wasn't the first effort at that. You have the Library of Alexandria, you have the, the Four Treasury Project of the Qianlong Emperor in China, and other attempts to kind of collect, collect all knowledge into one one uh, place um so although a little bit science fictiony almost i think it's it fits into you know the times of the 17th century both philosophically and in this kind of desire of scientists to have a catalog of all knowledge um, now lovecraft saying kind of saying that's a bad thing to try to strive for both because it leads to horrific results and also collecting knowledge in itself is dangerous, right? Uh, we come across that again and again in his writings. Um, now, I want to say another thing about this, though. <clears throat> I guess materialism is more popular now. I'm just, like, I don't really read modern philosophy. But I'm guessing it's, it's more popular than it was maybe a few hundred years ago. Um, now, the materialists... Now, I guess this kind of ties into transhumanism a little bit, right? So if we can replace our brain one cell at a time with electronic copies, right? We still have all the connections. Do we? Are we still human? Do we still have those memories? Are we still conscious? These are kind of questions that those transhumanists get into. Probably most say ultimately no, right? We could replace the whole thing with electronic circuits or more practically maybe we can reduce our consciousness to an algorithm or to a program and download it into the computer and live forever uh, as a program or at least have our memories and consciousness forever uh, that you know I don't think we have the storage capacity or the techniques to do this yet but it's it seems plausible to me that maybe we still lose the person I don't know I don't know about the recreation part of it that would be a whole nother device, but the idea of storing someone's entire consciousness into a computer does not seem totally off the wall to me in, in you know, in, in the potentialities of future technology, which is kind of what Kerwin's trying to do here. Uh, he's trying to take these essential salts, preserve them into little jars so he can awaken them and bring back to life these people and or, or storm or storm again, right? You need to have a question for Ben Franklin. You awaken Ben Franklin, right? Ask him what you want to know, and then you kind of reduce him back to the essential salts, right? It's almost like a transporter that where you, it's like a Star Trek transporter, where, but instead of moving people, you store them in the transporter buffer and just take them out when you need to, right? So I think there's something to this. I, I think it's not so easily uh, thrown away as kind of a laughable plot device um, or just kind of bad science fiction. I, I think it's actually rooted in some interesting ideas. Um, so if you have any thoughts about that, please let me know, um, and share them with me. So I want to talk about the case of Charles Dexter Ward in five parts. And the first part, the first chapter, there's five chapters. So I'm going to do one chapter an episode. The first chapter is called a result and a prologue. And so I'll, I've already sort of given you some of my thoughts on the overall story. Um, but this is a really good introduction uh, to the story itself. It doesn't really advance the plot that much, but it gives us a lot of useful information that is going to be important later on in the story. 
It's got two subsections. Uh, one subsection dealing with basically the aftermath of the final chapter of the story, so the result. And then we get a prologue which tells us a little bit about Charles Dexter Ward's background. And, you know, we don't see much of Charles Dexter Ward as like a normal person. We see him either sort of corrupted by his ancestor. And again, we've seen stories recently, like just in the last episode, like The Descendants. And we talked a little bit about the, the Roman Dream story. And we have The Silver Key where people are able to kind of recollect their past through dreams or connect literally to their ancestors. That was the point, important point of the descendant. Um, so this is something on his mind in these in this time of his career. And I think Lovecraft's career. And I think this is the case of Charles Dexter Ward is kind of feeding into that, that, that those ideas, right? Because pretty soon in the story, Charles Dexter Ward gets sort of taken over by his ancestor first mentally kind of across time somehow through these this kind of this desire to seek out one's ancestor which is common enough i mean people are always doing this dna stuff or genealogy and you know trying to pay a little bit of money to get their ancestral crest what even if it's all made up they, they like to have this connection to the past um there's that and then we see finally charles dexter ward is literally replaced murdered and replaced with with Joseph Kerwin after he's brought back, right? So Joseph Kerwin himself has been reduced to these essential salts. He's brought back by Charles Dexter Ward. And then soon after, Joseph Kerwin, his ancestor, kills him, takes over his life. But he looks similar enough that he kind of can fake it. Uh, but, you know, he's also basically an alchemist, so he can live as long as he want anyway. So he's not really plagued with old age, but there's, a diff oh, there's other differences. And this is all foreshadowed here. So... As it's presented, though, in the first chapter, if you've never read this story before, <clears throat> it's presented simply as a, and again, spoiler alert, it's, I guess it's already spoiled for you if you haven't, but I warned you. Um, the whole, but it's really, if you read this fresh, if you can wipe your memory of the story and read this fresh, it's a really great introduction. And I do think the story unfolds in kind of a shocking way if you read this for the first time. It's just, I've read it so many times, it's lost that effect, but I think it still works. It's still very, very effective. So we're told that Charles Dexter Ward is in the is, is in the asylum um, in in Providence. And this is set in Providence. It's a Providence story. It's not an Arkham story. It's not a, you know it's it's a Providence story, which I think is nice too because it's our it's our closest look and it allows Lovecraft to really go into his antiquarian interests. But anyways, um, we're in this this private hospital. Dexter Ward's family is Charles Dexter Ward's family is wealthy. They can afford, I guess, the private nut house. Um, and doctors are trying to understand this weird case of Charles Dexter Ward of this young man, promising young man, educating young man with weird interests, but still fairly normal, who suddenly became really weird. Like, um, first he's got some physical changes, like his face changes a little bit. He's a little bit droopier. Birthmarks have moved on his body, uh, and that's all really bizarre. But they don't really have an explanation for it. Other things they don't have an explanation for are the fact that like he used to just be a functioning young man interested in the past, and now he's just all interested about modern technology, and he seems to forgot how all modern things work. And that's a, that's a great part of the story is how Joseph Kerwin is ultimately undone by the fact that he doesn't like know how to like sign a check and weird things like this. He doesn't know how modern technology works, but he, he shifts from being interested in the antiquarian to being interested in the modern and the contemporary. Um, you know, his voice changes. There's all these little changes that get kind of 
dumped into the explanation of mental illness. But he's not really crazy either. He seems rational enough. He's just changed. So the the doctors um, don't quite know what to do with this this guy. Now the term given here are alienists. You've probably come across this term before. I even think there's a TV show called the Alienist now, which is just the old-fashioned word for like a, a psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, which is kind of an interesting derivation. I mean, the idea of studying someone who's alienated from themselves, I guess, that's it, or someone who's exploring the those that don't fit in. In a Foucauldian sense, it's kind of an interesting word choice. Um, now, we're also introduced to Willett in this, uh, and we know that Willett had the last conversation with uh, Charles Dexter Ward. We're also told that he had a discovery, he'd learned something, and all of this is revealed later on, but he, we don't get what it is. Um, so Willett himself is a bit of a mystery, what he knows. Um, and then we're told about his escape. So, the, you know, he's already gone from the hospital. He's escaped, and he, but it's like a six-floor building. He couldn't have escaped in any normal way. He must have had help. That stuff is a mystery, and there's no real evidence of where he's gone. And he's just totally vanished. Um, so all this is revealed in the very first section of the book and it's a really great introduction to this story that sets up so much right it's 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 pretty clear lovecraft was not making this up as he went along he had this all really planned out pretty carefully um when he started the story i think the most interesting thing is how you know word interests change right and this is what kind of leads the family and the doctors to think that something's up with this boy but at the same time he's totally rational and you know he speaks in a weird dialect of english now like an old-fashioned dialect but you know new interests odd behavior but not insane right so uh we get a little bit more details on on his background um and how it really starts like the weirdness started in 1919 so we have a date for the story uh charles Dexter ward himself was born in 1902 so when he's 17, when he's a teenager, just kind of a moody teenager, he becomes interested in his ancestry, his family history, the history of Providence. And he starts digging into the past um, of particularly his ancestor, Joseph Kerwin. Uh, Joseph Kerwin, uh, you know, they, he, there's almost nothing about him. There's almost nothing known about him. And, uh, you know, he finds his grave. We're told he found kind of Joseph Kerwin's grave. Um and then it's just, just kind of foreshadowing later things that will happen to um, to D Charles Dexter Ward later on. So it's, it's all foreshadowing and planting very seeds that are going to mostly most of them are going to thrive over the course of this really great story. Now, Willett, throughout this whole procedure, is he seems to know something. He had the last conversation with Ward, but he's also a bit cagey. For instance, I'll just read this bit of the story. Quote, from this opinion, however, Dr. Willett substantially dissents, um, basing his verdict on his close, continuous knowledge of the patient and on certain frightful investigations and discoveries which he made towards the last. Those investigations and discoveries have left their mark upon him, so his voice trembled when he tells them and his hand trembles when he tries to write of them. Willett admits that the change of 1919-20 would ordinarily appear to mark the beginning of a progressive decadence which culminated in the horrible and uncanny alienation of 1928 but believes from personal observation that a finer distinction must be made. So the, the debate here is those who say he started going nuts in 1919 when he became interested in this 
antiquarian stuff. And Willett says, well, not really. It's really 1928. Prior to that, he was still a normal kid. And Willett knows stuff. He knows the reality. He knows that Ward is dead. And he knows that this person in the insane asylum is Joseph Kerwin. But for reasons that are going to be clear by the end, he can't tell anyone because his job, the, his Willett's heroism in this story is almost entirely his ability to accomplish what people in the 18th century weren't able to accomplish. And that's the complete eradication, abolition of Joseph Kerwin's memory and all trace of him, right? The people in the 18th century did a pretty lousy job <clears throat> of hiding um, the reality. They try, they page paste pieces of, of like registries together. They hide his grave. They hide his home. They burn it down. They, they get rid of him through magic, but they never fully get rid of him as a, as a threat. So um, Willett will do that. And Willett, part of this job is to erase the past. Not even his parents can know. And that's, he's a censor. He's the ultimate censor. He's censoring the past. Then, Lovecraft obviously thinks sometimes it's best to do that. Sometimes it's best to just hide and abolish um, all the relics of the past. And Willett's the best hero to do that, right? Um, other people want, who want to do it, like Dyer and At the Mountains of Madness, don't. I mean, I think, what not that a joke in the, the Lovecraft fans, how Dyer writes a whole story saying, you can't come down to Antarctica because it's, scary stuff and I'm going to tell you all about the scary stuff that's going to pique your curiosity um, you know and then he he reads the Necronomicon and later on he takes part in the expedition that's talked about in the shadow out of time right so he kind of falls into the same patterns and traps uh, so he's not a good abolisher of the past even a uh, the hero in the Dunwich Horror doesn't do his complete job Willett spends much of the story just trying to erase the past and he succeeds all that's left is this weird case of charles dexter ward described in the first section of the first chapter that's all that's really going to be left to posterity thanks to the hard work of of willett and the narrator i guess but it's unlike the call of cthulhu this isn't a a, a, a textual narration it's not like text that exists in this world it's just the narrator's reflection on it it seems the only thing left is really the records of Ward's confinement in the asylum. Even we're told here that Kerwin's papers had been found and later on destroyed and destroyed by, by Willett. The last line, the last line of the first section of chapter one is uh, the doctor obtained from certain pair of formula during his final investigation results which virtually proved the authenticity of the papers and their monstrous imp implications at the same time that those papers were born forever from human knowledge. So, um, totally gone. Um, then we get into part two of the first chapter, and this tells us more about Charles Dexter Ward's youth and background and his interest in antiquarian things. And it's, I think what's notable about this chapter is it just allows Lovecraft to explore providence. He talks so much in his letters about his walking tours and he he did those with friends when they came to visit and now he gets to kind of give his readers the walking tour of providence which is great um and through the eyes of charles dexter ward a young man keenly interested in the antiquities of of new england very much like lovecraft was um so we get this great description of these walking and we get the same kind of experience we get in he where walking through towns through a village through a community 
through a city becomes an exercise in time travel. Um, quote, his walks were always adventures in antiquity, during which he managed to recapture from the myriad relics of a glamorous old city a vital and connected picture of the centuries before. His home was a great Georgian mansion atop a well-known precipitous hill that rises just east of the river, and from that window of its rambling wings he could look dizzily over all the clustered spires, domes, roofs, and skyscraper summits of the t later town to the purple hills of the courtside beyond. Sorry, of the countryside behind, beyond. Here he was born, and from this lovely classical porch and the double-bayed brick facade his nurse had first wheeled him in his carriage, past the little white farmhouse of 200 years before that, that the town had long overtook and on towards the stately colleges along the shady, sumptuous street and the old square brick mansions and smaller wooden houses with narrow, heavy column Doric porches dreamed solidly and exclusively amidst their generous yards and gardens. <clears throat> now he even goes farther back than that to colonial times and to pre-revolutionary homes. And our, our story eventually will take us to 17th and 18th century New England and the American Revolution specifically. And a lot of these buildings, Brown University, uh, a lot of these old homes of famous people, they're all real people from Providence history and American Revolutionary history. So except for the main characters, the Ward, Kerwin, Willett, except for that, you know, most of the people mentioned here are real people. Um, we even get a little hint at the racial themes that are going to be strong in this story. Um, we got a little bit of the kind of Lovecraft's anxiety about modern changes where he talks about how these communities are being overtaken by um, decay from the waterfront quote spectral in their many gabled archaisms and dripping to a riot of iridescent decay where the wicked old waterfront recalls its proud east india days amid polyglot vice and squalor rotting wharves and blear-eyed ship chandeliers which such surviving alley names as packet, bullion, gold, silver, coin, doublon, sovereign, gilder, dollar, dime, and cent. End quote. The commercial maritime history of New England that we're so familiar from our reading of Unknown Kadath, but also stories like uh, Picture in the House, uh, The Terrible Old Man, Call of Cthulhu, and later on Shadow Over Innsmouth. So we get this uh, deep history. We also get the, like, the introduction of new forces. So we got kind of even the street kind of in mini form uh, described here too. the changes, not in the necessarily the strong anti-immigrant rhetoric, but in the, the idea of a community changing subtly uh, year to year, generation to generation. Um, so now after we get this nice little walking tour of Providence, we're told about his specific interests in his family and how he gets kind of connected to uh, Joseph Kerwin. Now, here's where it comes from. He, he gets he becomes aware of Ward's great great his own great great grandfather, Welcome Potter, who married Anne Tillinghast, and this was the daughter of Mrs. Eliza, um, daughter to a Captain James Tillinghast. So we got this Miss Eliza figure right so who's this miss eliza well he goes back to the original town records and finds an entry of a miss eliza Kerwin, the widow of joseph Kerwin. so this is our first mention of joseph Kerwin, uh really in a, in a historical sense he was mentioned earlier in the story just in passing as the ancestor but we get our first clear historical piece of evidence about joseph Kerwin. And this is so he's got he, he realizes he has this 
ancestor, Joseph Kerwin. His great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, um, I guess, would, would have been Joseph Kerwin. But most of the records about Joseph Kerwin are gone. They're abolished. In fact, the entry... So he finds this entry um, and about the divorce. And the, the divorce was, quote, that her husband's name had become a public reproach by reason of what was known after his deceased, though which confirmed... Sorry, it's not. It's, she changes her name. Uh, uh, because the name had become public reproach by reason of what was known after his de decease, the witch confirming an ancient rumor, though not to be credited by a loyal wife, till so proven to be wholly past doubting, end quote. So it's uh, saying that this wasn't her fault. This bad, deprived reputation on her name, so she should change her name. She should be able to change her name. And she does that, and and that's where we get this this ancestry to Charles Dexter Ward several generations later. Um, but the interesting thing here is that someone tried to paste this page together. So someone actually tried to cover up Joseph Kerwin from the records. They just didn't do a very good job. Uh, like they should have burned the papers or something. But, you know, there's enough there for Ward to find out about Joseph Kerwin. And then once he finds out about this great, great, great grandfather, he starts to really become interested, growing curiosity about Kerwin. So he digs around, finds a bunch of stuff. Again, showing how badly the ancestors did at covering up Joseph Kerwin, which was their intention. And I think this works for me as a metaphor for the sins of America, slavery and genocide, which often are presented not as part of the American revolutionary story. Now historians do it more, but I guess in the old-fashioned way of looking at it, that's kind of sidelined. It's not part of the history we talk about. It certainly was, you know, remember the Constitution itself talks about slavery, but not directly, right? It, it has to talk about it because it's real, but as a real part of the compromise between northern and southern states. But it's at the same time it has to be talked about in euphemisms and code, right? Um, so there is kind of a cover up in a way and often how we remember our own nation's past, not just the U.S., but all nations uh, who try to create their own historical narrative of being a great nation with a historical legacy and a historical destiny of whatever sort. It's why here I'm teaching in China, my U my world history textbook has pages missing and sections blotted out. And it's, it's because a, a nation is trying to forget part of its past and, and not, I certainly don't want foreigners talking about it to, to, to young, young people, but it was an incomplete job and Ward was able to dig up much of Kerwin's history and that is what part two is going to be. Part two is called an antecedent and a horror. And it's a fairly long section. So the next episode may be long, depending on how much I have to say about it. But it gives us our history of Joseph Kerwin in the 18th century. I think it's one of the most important chapters and sections in all of Lovecraft stories. It's also one of the most interesting. So I hope you'll join me next time when I will jump into chapter two of the case of Charles Dexter Ward and talk explicitly about Atlantic history and the adventures in life of Joseph Kerwin. So in the meantime, share with me any of your thoughts you have about the case of Charles Dexter Ward from your own reading of the story, particularly the first part of the story. If there's anything important I missed, um, let me know. Is there any buildings that he mentions that are should be focused on? I know I just sort of glanced over that section of it. Um, but anyways, let me know what you think. I think it's a great story. It's one of my, it's, it's my favorite Lovecraft story uh, by far. And we're in for a treat because after that we get his two next most 
the the two my two next most favorite Lovecraft stories, the Colorado Space and the Dunwich Horror. So should be a fun uh, uh, month or so as I explore these tales. Um, so anyways, as always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with part two, uh, specifically chapter two of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. See you then.